Breakfast COVID-19 Q&A with Professor Helen Rees, Chairperson of the South African Health Products Regulatory Authority, as also a member of the World Health Organization International Health Regulations Committee in COVID-19, medical researcher and the founder and executive director of the WITS Reproductive Health and HIV Institute of the University of the WITS Rand. Professor Rees, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. There's a slight delay there. I hope she can hear me. Professor Rees, can you hear me? I can hear you very clearly. Oh, now it's perfect. Thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. Good morning again, and thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. Well, Professor Rees, I, I must tell you, I've got lots of questions to ask you, but before I go there, somebody had already sent in a, a quick question, and it seems like it's quite a, an urgent one. So let's go straight to it. It's Connor in KZN who's asking, Professor Rees, can you please explain how the recovery rate is calculated? If you agree that the figure is never going to be absolutely accurate since it does not include people undiagnosed of what value is it to us then is the question. Um, So so it's a very good question and interestingly there are different ways to calculate the recovery rate. Uh, There's a clinical way and there's an epidemiological way if you like. Um, But essentially it's people who have had who have been confirmed positive mm-hmm. um, and who have then got to the point uh, of recovery 10 days after mm. who, uh, who we, and, uh, and haven't died and, and so are still very much in society. And the important thing about the recovery rate is that it tells us how many active cases. It's a way of reflecting how many people are still actively infected. If it's very high, of course, they're still actively infected. They won't be in that recovery column. Once your recovery rate goes up, it's telling you that a lot of people have had this now and they've got over it. And that tells you that the the outbreak is is sort of going backwards and it's behind us. So the recovery rate is is a very important figure. At the moment in South Africa, it's 88%. And when we started, if you remember, the the recovery rates were sort of in the 60%. Mm. And that tells us that the number of active cases has reduced. And I mean, that, that figure changing so drastically, what do we attribute that to? Well, I think we, we've all seen, and if you've been following the figures, that we did have, as we expected, this big surge of cases in July. And obviously it started in the Western Cape and then Eastern Cape, Gauteng, and then to the rest of the country. So we've gone up to that peak and we're going down. Um, and this was the first wave, which in, in everywhere we've seen is, is by far the biggest wave. Um, and, and so what it's telling us is that we're over that first peak. What it can't predict is what's going to happen next. And we're all anxious uh, that, and we're expecting a second peak. But what we don't know is how big that second peak will be. We know what kind of brought down the peak initially um, because of lockdowns. But we don't medically know really what it is that we've done right to bring it down again and not to anticipate the second peak, do we? Well, I think we know some things. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're, you're right, we don't know everything. And, you know, scientists will be looking at this for many, many years to come as they're now looking back at the, 
the 1918 pandemic flu and still scratching their heads about certain things. Mm. So we certainly know that the lockdown had an enormous impact um, and, and it was hard and it was very hard on the economy and that's why we don't want to go back there. But it did have an enormous impact and it did allow us to prepare health services. So we saw a decrease in the mortality during the lockdown and since then, the important things that we've been pushing are the mask wearing, the distancing, ventilation, hand washing, you know, rules in taxis. We know that that's not so well done, but nonetheless. But all of these measures are contributing to keeping those figures low. If we hadn't done that and we just got lockdown back to normal, we would have seen the figures shoot up probably even higher. And if we abandon those now, our second wave is going to be much higher than if we if we uh, then, then it would be if we keep pushing those measures those measures do have an effect and they're incredibly important people shouldn't underestimate that this is a nasty virus the only way we're going to keep it away until we get a vaccine or or better preventive measures is by adhering to those measures Professor Rees, we had a strategy, a testing strategy in this country where there were certain categories you need to comply with to be a candidate to be tested. I'm slightly concerned about the people that um, the minister spoke of not so long ago saying, well, you know, we need to get people to the hospital as quickly as possible because there were more deaths now recorded, for instance, in, in rural areas, people dying at home. So... My concern is we we don't have those people post-death tested. So we don't really know what caused the death, but there was a rise in the number of people dying at home. And so what I'm trying to say is to what extent are we missing the actual number of people who are infected by COVID-19? Well, I think we we all understand that we are. For, for, one, for one reason, a, a lot of people are asymptomatic, so mm. they don't even present. Uh, possibly up to 40%, possibly more. Um, but So those people are not going to be tested. Yeah. We also know that, yes, people dying at home, sometimes people would appear to die of other natural causes and they might not be tested. And one of the um, uh, <clears throat> strategies at the moment is for people who die at home and unexpectedly who have post-mortems is that they should be tested. But we certainly know that we've got over 13,000 deaths in the country, but we, 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 and we, we, we think that we know that that is an underestimate. Mm-hmm. It might be twice to three times as high as that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't really know, but we certainly know that, that, that it's significantly higher. Mm-hmm. So complacency around the fact that our, our death rate has not been as high as we feared is is not appropriate because we do know it's an underestimate Mm -hmm. and that many people, as you say, dying at home, people with other comorbidities Mm -hmm. where you might have attributed it, for example, to heart disease, that we are missing a lot, perhaps as many as three times. Okay. Let's just talk about this COVID-19 antibodies found in 37% of pregnant women and HIV positive (coughs) people. It's a good thing, isn't it? Well, it's a, it's a very good thing, and in a way, um, uh, we're not not surprised. Okay. Um, we we know that uh, many of our, our, our many of our, our, our um, citizens are living in very overcrowded situations in informal settlements, in high rises, and places like Hillbrow. So, if you look at where and how people are living, very close together. Mm. 
um, it's not at all surprising that this has swept through. If you think about common colds, it, everyone knows if, if somebody's got a, a cold in a household, it's very likely to spread. And the more people in the household and the closer you live together, the more likely it is to spread. And that's, a sim- that's the same family of, of viruses. So um, having that nearly 40%, 37% in pregnant women tells us that this virus swept through communities and particularly those communities with those kinds of close living conditions. The, the important thing about it is, is what will that mean for the spread of the virus? Mm. And we're becoming increasingly optimistic that the number of people in the community that need to have antibodies, that have had the infection and are now having, having some level of immunity, we mm. don't know how long for, but certainly we think a level of immunity, certainly for a few months, uh, we're beginning to think we thought we would have to have 50-60% of people um, who had antibodies to stop to interrupt this virus, to stop it in its tracks because mm. it won't be able to keep mm. finding more and more people. Mm. Now we're wondering whether in fact that figure might be lower, about 40 to 50%. And modelling suggests indeed, if you look worldwide, mm-hmm. that you don't need as many, probably don't need as many people, 60% of people in the community to get that herd immunity effect. So this is a very important finding and we're going to see in the next few weeks many more of what are called zero surveys where people in communities are tested to see if they have antibodies which will tell us whether or not they've been infected. How does this inform then what we saw in other countries where there has been a second surge or a peak? So in areas where we saw quite a large number of people being infected and then supposedly recover and then have a second surge. So I'm trying to see how that logic helps us with understanding what's happened there. Yes, it's it's a very interesting question because in many of the European countries, they had had seen all these second waves. And that's why we've seen, you know, airlines opening up for the summer holidays and closing and quarantine. But interestingly, this week I was on a call um, with uh, uh, colleagues from around the world and the people in the UK and Ireland were saying, yes, they've had a second wave but they're not seeing the severity of illness Mm. that they saw in the first wave. So although they've had a second wave, A, it's not as high or as big as the first wave, and they're not seeing that severity. Mm -hmm. But what they are saying is that that the people who are in the second wave are young people who, in a way, um, not sticking to the rules. They're young people who are going out to bars, not wearing masks, not distancing. It's the second wave seems to be in, in that population who we know don't get such severe illness. Hmm. So uh, we, we should expect a second wave, and it really is up to us as citizens how bad it is. Hmm. Because remember, even if you're a young person, you think, well, I'm not going to get too sick. A, that's not true. Yeah. We've got a lot of young people who have got very sick and, and numbers who have died. But also the problem is that if one group in the community uh, abandons all of these measures. They're going to keep that virus circulating and we will affect more of the really vulnerable, the older people and people with comorbidities. It's very important to understand that. Yeah. Let me take a, a message from um, from Sig in Randburg who says, while working towards a COVID-19 vaccine, should we not strengthen the immune system of the elderly by vaccinating them against all of the viruses and diseases against which our children have been rendered immune? That is a really, really good question. And <clears throat> I'm going to ch- share some sort of hot off the press information. Yeah. Indeed, there are some of those childhood vaccines that evoke what's called a non-specific 
immune response. That means that, for example, if you give the, the BCG vaccine for TB or the measles vaccine for, against measles, they will protect against those diseases to a greater or lesser extent, but they also stimulate the immune response and create a, a memory which means that they, they, they have, if, it's, if you like, an immune booster. Yes. It means that they protect against a range of other diseases. So you see that the, the, the infection in children, for example, in studies that have been done, where they've had these vaccines, that you also see other infectious, infectious agents going down in that because this immune system has been stimulated. Mm. So one of the research questions that's um, on the table is whether if we give some of these vaccines where we know we've observed these effects, Mm -hmm. will we have this nonspecific immune response just boosting the immune system of of people, and particularly, uh, uh, as as the, the listener said, older people who are the most vulnerable in terms of mortality. There is a study that's about to start in South Africa. It's going through all of the approval processes mm-hmm. where we'll be offering the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine to healthcare workers mm-hmm. um, and to see whether they, it, it, with this boosting effect, whether it will protect them against COVID-19. And that's important for two reasons. One is in case you get second waves, in case this virus keeps circulating, in case we don't get a COVID-19 vaccine. But it will also be important because, remember, this pandemic has hit us all. But it's not going to be the last pandemic we see. The next pandemic will be something else. And we don't know what that something else will be. If we can demonstrate this effect from other vaccines, it will give us some sort of tool Mm -hmm. if we have another pandemic as we rush with another virus or uh, to, to develop a vaccine, it might give us some sort of intervention too. Will this almost counter the argument that a lot of Africans have been putting on the table that maybe genetically we are better off, that's why we're doing much better? Because Europe and, and parts of the North, we know that there's contestation around vaccines in general, whereas in, in the, the greater South, there hasn't really been that. So people have actually uh, gone and gotten their vaccines taken look i think if this has hopefully taught communities one thing is just how important vaccines are i mean we are saving in the african region literally millions of lives particularly of children because that's who we obviously target for most of the vaccines but now increasingly we're offering vaccines to adults as well for different infections vaccines are incredibly important they save lives they save illness if you look at polio we've just declared africa Polio, wild poliovirus free. And this was a disease that not only, you know, killed people, but crippled people and changed the course of their lives in hundreds of thousands. So if this hopefully has taught us anything is, you know, if get your children immunized, you know, do not be the person who says, I don't see these infections our way. Measles is a vicious disease. And unless you've got very, very high protection in the community, the measles virus, if you have an outbreak, will find every child and every adult who hasn't a vaccine. So big message, yes, get vaccinated. Very insightful. Thank you so much, Professor Helen Rees, there uh, for our COVID-19 Q&A. She's a chair of the South African Health Products Regulatory Authority, also a member of the World Health Organization International Health Regulation Committee in COVID-19, a medical researcher and the founder and executive director of the WITS Reproductive Health and HIV Institute at WITS.